Hi, you all. I feel much more used to you now than I did the first time I was giving a talk, or for whatever reason. I'm a little more relaxed, and maybe you are also, after practicing together for quite a while. Is it five days now? Something like that. Well, congratulations, and thank you for your practice. This will be a talk on joy, and um, don't start cringing yet. I'll get to cringing part of it later. (laughs) Um, We heard in one of the groups about um, the purple flowers. Um, Anyway, I have an explanation for that. Well, when I, um, my father used to live in Miami when he was alive, and I would visit a yoga class there that was taught by a yoga teacher who was a little bit nutty, so that when we were lying in Shavasana, she'd sort of walk around talking about whatever was in her mind, um, (laughs) including things like if a mother dog has had sex with more than one male dog, and the puppies come out and they have different fathers, are they still sisters and brothers, or is there some other word that we should call them? (laughs) Stuff like this. (laughs) And after one of these things... um, (laughs) the mind is really interesting isn't it Um, (laughs) she said um, thank you for the effort that you made in the class and the good thing that you did for yourself in having come to this yoga class and thank you also for all the good things that you do in your life and I guess I'm not just quoting her I'm saying that to you all now and as I was lying there on the floor and she said that I there was suddenly this connection that for me was made from her words to you know what yeah you know I I have done good things in my life there is this goodness in me Um, and I try to do even more good things than I can actually do and I try and I fail very often to do things well and right but it connected with um, something very deep, and it was not too much to say that I saw the goodness in myself in a way that felt um, great, felt very pure, felt very legitimate to connect with, and not like being a jerk or narcissistic or anything like that. So in a sense, that's what this talk is about, is perceiving the goodness in oneself and in other beings and in life as a support for our loving-kindness practice. As the texts say that one of the causes of loving-kindness is exactly that, to see the goodness in ourself, in others, and in life, and in those beings to whom we're offering our kindness So I do invite you to do that as a practical matter um, in your sittings and walkings as you're repeating the phrases and visualizing the beings to whom you're offering these gifts of kindness, yourself and others, to um, sort of move along the ray of goodness, um, to trust it and to see it and to know that it's there and to feel that it's real as is part of the practice and it's very, very supportive. So in this day, in this time in the retreat, um, it's sort of a progression. We've noticed some little smiles appearing on people's faces um, through the day, that little secretive smiles with your eyes closed. And I can imagine the uh, visions that are going on in your minds that the metta practice is moving a little bit and you're sensing some of the joy in that practice. So as the hindrances are, can tend to be more prominent early and the, it's very important to see um, how, we, how much we hate ourselves, which hasn't completely gone away and may not, you know, and the uh, need for compassion, as Sharon was speaking, like for the heart to be able to go toward what's difficult. Sharon also talked about um, empathetic joy or sympathetic joy a little, which I'll um, get to, I think, maybe in this. But now that there may be a little room for it in the retreat, um, we invite you to turn your attention to the beautiful side of 
life and of what you're doing and to appreciate it and to learn it as one of your happiness skills that joy can be cultivated and it's very worth cultivating as part of this practice. It's been known for a long time that there's a sort of positive uh, attitudinal practice that people can do, but it's not often taught in a methodical way. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, people are as happy as they make up their minds to be. But there's not really a path in those words. It's like, make up your mind to be happy and just be happy. It doesn't seem to work. Um, as <laughs> some of the invisible blood, sweat, and tears that's all over the floor here um, says, if that could happen um, overnight, we would all be doing that, or we would have done it some time ago. So it is a, it's a practice, like the loving-kindness practice is, with its ups and downs and the effort and skill that's needed We need some tools and we need to have the faith or belief or understanding that uh, joy is also in harmony with the way that things are. Not only that it's legitimate and that we deserve to feel joy, but also that it's not a trap or an illusion or stupid or fake. There's a growing science of gratitude, as Sharon pointed out, the um, mudita or the empathetic joy practice, when it's directed to oneself, it has a little bit to do with gratitude, with appreciation of, as I was saying, the goodness in oneself, but also the goodness that is in the life that we already have, like feeling grateful for the sources of support that we do have and recognizing them, um, not necessarily immediately moving on to try to fix what's lacking but to remember to appreciate and uh, enjoy what we have. There's a growing body of science about this, and those who are interested in that kind of mind science, brain science, and positive psychology, there is an explosion of this in our country and our world nowadays, and lots that can, you can read and find online, many, many resources about this. As I was researching this talk, I found that there's a $5.6 million project just to get people to say thank you more. <laughs> Anyone out there who has grant writing skills, you might want to go pull down <laughs> some of that low-hanging fruit. I don't know. <laughs> and I'll just give a couple of examples of um, the effects of gratitude. Um, there was a, some research done about Um, children in the Middle East under bombardment, and teenagers, adolescents, and it really helped if they had a good family where they felt safe and secure in the love of their family, but also having a gratitude practice, a structured way of saying thank you and appreciating what was good about their life minimized their trauma. The ones who uh, had a gratitude practice did a little bit better than those who didn't have one. Um, Is it you can imagine like letting the mind be overtaken more by fear or relatively less by fear. And there was another one done, uh, study done with earthquake survivors in, in Indonesia, a quake where 10,000 homes were destroyed and over 1,000 people died. The people who practiced gratitude um, became more resilient or recovered sooner. And one thing that was interesting about this study was that the effects of their gratitude practice didn't show up right away. It took a little while before the mind uh, was healed around it as a result of this practice. And I would just like to say that in general, meditation practice is a part of, you know, healing our life and healing our world. It's not the only thing, and we may talk about this a little bit more later, but we need communities, we need, you know, good and decent laws. The outer and the inner worlds both need work. And even our inner world can be benefited and blessed by the help of other kinds of people, like our silent labors, even though we're silent in a community here, may not be all that any one of us needs in order to sort of fill out and understand our happiness. However, this very intensive silent retreat practice is a truly amazing tool and much needed in our world. I don't even like to call it a tool. It's like a part of life that's very beautiful for many of us and many of you. And 
those of you who are new, we hope you had a good enough time that you may wish to come back um, at some point and just not because of keeping IMS going, but because of what happens over time, the sense of growth in oneself that's so um, rewarding and beautiful. But um, I don't want to sound like an advertiser <laughs> here. But we've been talking about how the phrases are like gifts or offerings, or they're also like a seed, you know, and if you're planting a seed, sometimes the ground feels hard or or too mushy, you know, the, in our emotional state, in our life continuum as we plant these seeds of well-wishing, they may not flower right away, but um, if we consistently work at our meditation practice for 30 or 40 years, you will definitely see some transformations. <laughs> <laughs> you might see something that's the size of a bush in a three years, maybe, <laughs> but like a great big shady tree might take a while. I also feel like it's not, it's kind of not helpful to view it as a something that you're doing it in order for one thing to happen you know now for some of you that might sound scary like all right now I have stuck here for the rest of my life that's not what I mean anyway with these practices of gratitude and rejoicing there's physiological benefits that your immune systems are helped and um, positive emotions have advantages for the body just as stress hormones are kind of destructive, you know, so we're affecting our body chemistry to some degree here. It warrants our serious attention and investigation as the Buddha saw and knew without the intervention of an MRI machine. Um, (laughs) He was someone who noticed how things felt, that it's a phenomenology. It was, he was an observer of... um, the experience of living, not so much someone who said this is why the world is this way, it's just how do we um, deconstruct our suffering and what can we do that blesses our life and just makes us happy in a genuine way, not a fake, addicted, shallow, superficial way. So practicing the habit of joyousness or noticing what's good is one of the skills that the Buddha taught and that uh, we'd like to pass on to you. William James said, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Those items that I notice shape my mind. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Those items that I notice shape my mind. And we can choose what we notice and how we notice it. That's actually the practice the training of our attention, the gathering of our attention on the phrase and the offering of the phrase from an open heart. And it's interesting that this is a critical area in our psyche where we have the ability to choose our attitude to some degree, like the consistency of our training and attitude and attention makes a big difference. Um, And those things which we pay attention to reveal many dimensions say like if you're not paying attention to your partner or your dog or racism or oppression, then you may not notice much about any of those things. But once you start to pay attention in a targeted way, you'll see what's going on. And you might be able to affect a kind of change that's beneficial. So here in the metta practice, loving kindness practice, we're cultivating an intention and an attitude and we're also noticing plenty of what happens when we start to try to cultivate that. So we can also train in our ability to select and recognize and delight in goodness. And it's not a narcissistic thing or tooting our own horn or it's not fake or overblown and it doesn't mean that we start to try to ignore the suffering. That's I think part of why Meditators might feel it's a little bit dangerous. We're not paving over a painful deficiency or lying to ourselves. All of these sort of protective voices can come up when we start to contemplate what would it be like to become more joyous. The voices of the unworthy one, as Oren so poignantly spoke of the other night, a talk that affected many of us very deeply beginning to see the goodness in ourself or the good enoughness might also involve um, having seen our pain. So it's a subtle art to practice this. 
there's a phrase um, that I use that comes from a Sri Lankan text that um, I drop into my practice, not as a you know, complete practice, but just once in a while, um, how wonderful you are in your being. How wonderful you are and how wonderful I am in my being. I'm glad that I'm here and I'm glad that you're here. How marvelous is life itself, really. And in a sense, how sad it is that we can get so boxed in and not see it. You know, that our mind has that habit of almost getting into its problem and trying to work its way out and not always know how to just take a break from that kind of work. Sharon was talking about the woman in the um, battered women's program who couldn't take a break because of she was really trying to help all the suffering. And that's the same thing that we do inside ourselves also, I think, many times, is we start inside the problem trying to help it, and we don't know when to just give ourselves a break. Many people today in the groups talked about how you have been making the practice your own and knowing when it's sort of not working and you need to go around or do something a little bit differently or come back to do loving kindness for yourself or take a walk, something like that. That too is a form of loving kindness to sort of let, when something just gets too hot to handle, to find another thing to do. So all of you with your, each one 24,000 miles of blood vessels and more neurons than there are stars in the sky, um, how marvelous you are. I invite you to think about how every person in this room has been a benefactor at some point, including yourself. You too have been a blessing for someone and part of what we're doing here is to learn to be more of a light for others. I mean, that's um, kind of goes with the territory. Have we not supported someone else by giving them a present, uh, like a birthday present or a hug or told someone you like their outfit? Have some of us adopted animals from animal shelters where otherwise they might have been killed or gassed because there are too many animals that don't have an owner or planted a garden or a tree or nurtured a child or put a hand on someone's shoulder when they were crying, handed them a tissue without even announcing that whose hand it was when they were crying hard. Tried to comfort our own self and help ourselves to eat better or stop drinking or whatever we needed to do and how hard sometimes those tasks were of seeing what was necessary to take care of ourselves or given money to a charity. Shared our resources with the world. So we've helped genuinely, all of us. All of us have helped and we're helping each other in the retreat, each in our roles and with the yogi jobs and with just coming in here and sitting as quietly as possible and not screaming when <laughs> you're frustrated. <laughs> Taking care to not bother each other too much. <laughs> even if the other people might bother you sometimes. So it's a worthy, worthy practice to notice this and put your attention on these things and to keep your attention there. They say that sustaining your attention on something is what starts to make a connection in the brain. So we sort of tend to pass over this stuff and take it for granted, though we live with the support of the roof and the walls and the heat and the little fan that's circulating the air so it doesn't get too stuffy, and the acoustics here that were chosen in order that uh, it wouldn't be too echoey, all of it. My Tibetan teacher invited me to go to, um, I had a month-long retreat at one point, and I had finished this huge set of practices where I had to do 500,000 this's and that's, including 100,000 prostrations and 
100,000 mandala offerings with rice and 100,000 refuge prayers and bodhicittas and guru yogas and all this stuff. And it took me 10 years, which was, it, it seems to me that I, whenever I do a big project, it takes me like longer than it takes most people. That's just, I'm starting to observe this. <laughs> so in my month long retreat in India, he said, um, I said, well, what should I do? Like, I've finished that practice. Are you going to give me another one? He said, no, why don't you just rejoice that you finished the one that you did? <laughs> like a month? Just be happy for what I already did for a month? It's like, I can't do that. He said, yeah, well, think about how you used to be before you started this and the effect that it's had on you and how you've changed and just be glad that you've finished and stuff. And so those were his pieces of advice. And I did it for about a day. <laughs> it just didn't feel like, you know, it just felt sort of bogus, you know, like, okay, so I did it. Like, how long am I supposed to sit there going, yeah, how great, you know, pat myself on the back and stuff. And now, these years later, I think, like, it was weird that I didn't, you know, you're supposed to follow your guru's instructions, and I disobeyed. That was bad. I started another nundro, so maybe at the end of that I'll be able to rejoice, I don't know. But I think we're deeply conditioned in this way to not necessarily give the kind of appreciation to what's good and beautiful about us, about ourself, about our activities, about our efforts. Um, certainly I grew up with the Judeo-Christian uh, injunction that let not the right hand know what the left hand is doing. If you're doing good, you're not supposed to call attention to yourself. You're just supposed to secretly do it and do it in an anonymous way and sort of hide that. I mean, you're also not supposed to hide your light under a bushel, but um, I don't know what that means either. I noticed in Burma that at first it made me kind of uncomfortable that when a building was built, they would um, put cover the walls with the names of the donors. Like they would just devote an entire wall to who had given money to this or free editions of books. About half the book would be the donors. And it went down to like the microscopic amounts of money, like less than a dollar, like people who gave like 50 cents had their name in there which I think is really interesting and cool that it wasn't like it's too little to give. It was that every act of giving was a generous act and worth recognizing and rejoicing in the person having done it, as well as being a way of saying um, everyone's contribution is part of why this is here. Again, it's a little bit different from someone saying, well, if I give $8 million, will you name the cancer ward after me kind of thing? That's there must be other people who were part, partially helping f with that. And I, don't, I probably sh shouldn't cast aspersions on that because those major gifts are also, you know, really majorly worth celebrating and remembering. And I'm sorry to undermine the goodness in that. <laughs> sorry. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't do that. That's not the spirit of my talk. <laughs> I should be celebrating huge generosity in a gigantic way, right? Wow, $8 million, that's a lot. <laughs> Maybe it is about tooting your own horn. Why not? I don't know. Um, have a building named after you. Why not? Or a stadium. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that our vulnerability and our brokenness are not a part of our life or that some of our ways of giving haven't been dysfunctional or you know not exactly what they appeared to be you know when we give the clock in order that someone won't be mad at us or something it it might seem like generosity and it isn't but sometimes maybe the person who got the clock needed the clock so all in all um, there might still be something to celebrate in things that we've done that were a little bit distorted. It's hard to do things in a perfect manner. It's always great when one can, when one feels that real opening of the heart for appreciation or forgiving. But there's also room for some forgiving in how we've tried all our efforts and our predecessors' efforts that came together, that kept us alive so far, brought us here. We're really on the on the backs and shoulders of so many, and many people who have sacrificed a lot to help us be here. 
and who may not have had the conditions that we have in being here. That's something to rejoice in as well. So many things have built the path for us to be able to meditate. Even our current day relatives are doing without us for now and are part of our ability to be here. Maybe they're taking care of our houses or our relatives or our children or our plants or just putting up with us being gone and not calling them. So thank you to all of those people. This practice of joy can bring so much more resiliency to our mind to return to being with what is. It gives a buoyancy to us. When my dad was sick and dying, my sisters and I took this practice of sending each other a text, group text messages of gratitude every day. Like, and it helped us stay and feel connected in holding each other through this giant loss and his loss that was going on. Um, one sister likes to take runs before she goes to work, so she would sometimes see a bird. And the other one would sometimes cuddle with her daughter at night. And sharing that and knowing that um, was beautiful for us. I sent one the other day saying that I liked the sheets on my bed upstairs. You know? And as one turns one mi- one's mind that way, one can be glad that somebody's putting fresh toilet paper in the bathroom outside the dining hall or lots of things. It's like your mind can kind of light up with these kind of sparkles of um, something that is about recognizing the kindness of this world. So to move on into the ability to share the joy of others, uh, not as a vampire or a ghoul or something, but we are able to rejoice um, and be empathically joyous as much as we're able to be empathically sad. Often it seems it's easier to be empathically sad and see the vulnerability in others than to truly partake in their joy their good fortune, or their good qualities, particularly if we feel like we don't have that same good fortune or good qualities in ourself. And very often, based on the way our mind constructs self and other, when we see a good quality in someone else, there's something in our mind that sometimes says, well, I'm ruled out from having that. It's as if it casts some kind of shadow on us right away. But based on the reality of interconnection, really all good things are latent in us and we're connected to all good things. We're part of all good things as much as we're also part of the world of suffering that, and harm that goes on that we try to participate and spin the wheel the other way. So how about when we feel happy in the victories of another person or another group of people. When one of our close relatives makes a long-awaited change in their life to stop suffering in some way, like to leave a job or get a new relationship or dare to try to learn how to swim or something like that, doesn't our heart kind of open in a way when the, if the person is already dear to us, it's easier? Or we see the good work that's being done in the world to undo class distinctions and racism, and to see that there are many people who are willing to do this work and look at remaking our world in a better way. Like, do you remember when the Chilean miners were underground a few years ago and so many people in the world were happy and so many people in the world helped get them out and were so happy that they all survived and they were relatively mentally sane after so long underground and that bullet thing that they whooshed up to the surface in that had to go through some kind of little bend and how much human intelligence went into getting this small number of people out. Like the whole planet was ringing with happiness then. I like to read a blog about India where there's um, people planting new forests. Um, a guy who goes will come around for free and plant 13 kinds of trees in your garden that grow fast because it's a tropical climate. Gay marriage is now legal in so many places. 
um, that barrier fell or, you know, it's not completely down, but it fell sort of quicker than anybody really expected all of a sudden there. I remember my friends in New Mexico said that New Mexico is such a backward state that they never bothered to make a law against it. And so when (laughs) two men went into some county place and said, we want to get married, and the guy said, well, I guess I'll do it. They didn't even, there's no fight. (laughs) New kinds of medical understandings and devices. Um, You know, many people who were born with their bodies stuck together can now be separated in ways that couldn't happen before. Today I heard from one of you all about a woman who gave a fortune so that an Indian village where she'd spent time, they could all get on the train and travel everywhere in India that she'd been and see the wonders of their own country that they hadn't had access to getting out before, which is a way of sort of trying to repair the disparity of ourselves being from this kind of country and able to go and visit people in that kind of country where they can't come and visit us and look at us as the amazing indigenous people with our odd customs and take pictures of us crossing the street and doing our stuff, you know, the way we do them. (laughs) But this happened and a book was written about it and it was fun and it was also scary for the villagers, I guess. I actually would like to read this book. But if we don't notice and be grateful and rejoice in these things before we move on, I think we'll collapse because the problems we face are also very big. And if we think that there's been no progress, Why should we start trying again, or why should we keep trying? The Dalai Lama has famously said that if I only am happy because of my own happiness, I have one person's chance to be happy. But if I'm able to share the joy in all beings, then I have about seven billion chances to be happy with the people in the world, to share the happiness of everyone. The truth is that joy and suffering don't belong to us necessarily. We were, Sharon said something about suffering, you know, the difference between blame and suffering, to not assign blame but just see the suffering. And there's something in that that's sort of the universality of it. But the joy too doesn't necessarily belong to the one who feels it. It just can be felt, it can become a current that we share. Like, it is really fun to look at you guys meditating and seeing you smiling. Um, in this way that you look kind of like him. (laughs) It's really cool. Or the many colored offerings of meals on the board and with their messages of love and wisdom and human connection and thinking that the lunch that we eat has actually been given um, with this spirit in mind. It kind of infuses the food if you think about it. It's like this food that we're eating has been given to us because someone cared not only about us, but about the people that they're dedicating the meal to. And they're making a sacrifice. Like, it's not a tiny amount of money. It's kind of a chunk to feed all of us. There's lots of us here. Um, And the cooks who prepare the food for us every day, then all of us who are, and you, who are the veggie choppers, trying not to talk in the kitchen, I imagine. and rejoicing in the chopping, I'm sure, some of you, like the beauty of the vegetables. I like to think about all the wonders of that process in cooking. And the work retreatant, who's, I should stop this list, who's cleaning the kitchen with a toothbrush. Um, and he found that the toothbrush that he was using was, I think, too soft. So he gave his toothbrush, which he felt was a little too hard. And he says, I haven't used it yet, but I'm really happy to know that it's there. He said today. So there's some crannies in the kitchen, he says, that haven't been looked at for years, and he's in there. (laughs) Aren't we glad? (laughs) Are we happy? (laughs) So the definition of mudita um, practice, or mudita in Pali and Sanskrit, is boundless joy. And it's the feeling, um, this is from the Tibetan tradition, And I got it from a talk by Myoshin Kelly, whom I'll quote later, but I also then found it in its own way on Google, the source of all knowledge um, now, (laughs) other than Dharma talks and books. But there's the feeling that a camel is a very emotionally sensitive creature and with a sort of unprotected heart. So when the sensitive mother camel loses track of her calf, 
how sad she feels and how scared she is and how she goes all around mooing and making the camel noises to get it back. And then the feeling that this camel feels when she finds her calf again, the boundlessness of her joy. That's like the boundlessness of mudita. So the word mudita comes from mudu, which means uh, tenderness, tender heart. And we may all understand in our experience how um, in order to receive joy or receive a gift, the heart also has to open. And you have to be like soft to kind of let it in. And sometimes that can even be difficult, um, can be a kind of vulnerable thing to say how much we appreciate life or we appreciate something given. So this tender heart is not only for our sorrow, It's also allowing ourselves to be pleased. I remember a married couple that I know where he was older and she was younger and she moved into the house with all the ex-wife's stuff kind of thing. And um, I said, well, how was that for her? And he said, oh, she has such a generous heart. She doesn't really think of it, this stuff as being mine. Wasn't that interesting? Like generous usually means the ability to give something away but the ability to share and receive the sharing so that, you know, all the stuff in the house didn't remind her of the former wife so that she had to redecorate kind of thing. She was able to allow him to have had the life that he used to have and say, trust his inclination to make the life that was theirs our life now. Very beautiful. So here, as we offer our kindness from person to person, and then to groups of beings and enlarging the circle of our kindness, we are taking the bounds off our heart, the boundaries off our heart. Not only are we expanding our kindness in a sense of distance, I don't know if you've noticed that some of the people, it feels like you sort of have to send it to somewhere else for them to receive it as we're imagining this practice. It's funny how concrete it becomes. Like people say, well, this person appeared, the tiger jumped out, and it feels so very real and yet when we look at what the distances are in our mind and then imagine um, as Oren was saying today in the Q&A what would it be like if you just rested in the kindness rather than our separate identities is that a possibility for us at certain points not all points because the heart then closes and opens but what would happen we're also opening the bounds that are like in our hearts, like the, some of the locked doors and uh, trap doors through all the nuances of our reactions and responses. When we work with a difficult person and we feel how we've felt, the fear of that person or the irritation or the betrayal, and we're tender to our own heart as well as perhaps being willing to wish well or at least uh, not wish harm to the other being. I remember Sharon this morning saying, uh, imagining the person dying, and a little part in my heart went, hey, hey. You know, <laughs> I was like, that's not loving kindness <laughs> at all. <laughs> it's more the vulnerability in their dying and wishing them, you know, uh, smoothness in their transition, and why would we want anyone really to suffer? I think when I went, hey, hey, it was more like imagining them like, not bothering me anymore rather than wishing that they would suffer, you know what I mean? But that's what the self-centered mind tends to do. It doesn't care. It puts people outside our circle of care and forgets that they are a being just the way we are and they want happiness and they can suffer and rejoice just like we do. There was a person today in the Q&A and this has happened over in the groups that when we are working with a difficult person, there's often an internalized shame or guilt or negative identity as a result of suffering or conditions that we've met in life where we haven't been treated respectfully. And as Oren said, that's not true. That's not true. That too is opening a door in our heart that keeps our suffering locked away from us. We can begin to have the feeling that we're able to have loving kindness for ourselves compassion for ourself and the wisdom to see the goodness in ourself and make it untrue that we deserved what we got. Nobody deserves any suffering. Really, no being should have it. That's where we can come to. 
we can come to be living from this place, the intention to offer loving kindness in an appropriate manner in every situation that we meet, whether it's a dear person or ourself, or whether it's to say no to a situation or to say yes. Uh, we've talked extensively about how it's not just always saying yes. It seems to me that we may be developing not an emotion, although sometimes it is a beautiful emotion, but a state of motivation uh, where we have more and more the readiness, the willingness and to cultivate this and to go through the suffering that we're going through in order to open our hearts. You guys are suffering also, right? I mean, it's work. We hear it, we see you crying and we hear the questions and we feel it in ourselves having done the same practice that it's not easy, but it's worthwhile. It's not all smooth and it's not all smooth in the world, you know, like we might resolve to make some corner of our life better and it takes five years and we go forward and back just like trying to get health care for everybody. It takes a long time. There's opposition inside and outside. Yet we continue. Yet we want to prevail because of the goodness in our hearts. It's not only just an impulse from within, as you will know when you wake up at whatever horrible time that bell rings in the dark and <laughs> you really don't want to get out of bed, right? It's not just because you want to do it all the time. There's a kind of a, there is a goal-directed response in it and that's legitimate. We play with these things about, we know we're planting seeds for the future. We know there's something we want to become. We're almost um, meeting our current self with our future self in some way, I believe. Like the may I thing, it's such an interesting construction. And sometimes it breaks down into something that sounds really wishy and fake, but sometimes it has to do with um, bringing ourselves and our inner world into a future that's better and more healthy for all of us. So let's understand these forces of kindness. And I know that in the Q and A's, it's like you, we're all parsing, what does this mean? Is this legitimate and how does it work? And how does it really make things better? Or you know, when is it kind of wrong or when are we doing it wrong? There's a lot of subtlety that our own mind brings to bear on this process. There's a real inquiry that happens and we hope as teachers to assist you in it, but it's ultimately our own decisions here. It's a kind of question that we're asking and a way of trying to know the world, this loving kindness practice. So what we know in this practice, we start to know our suffering and our obstacles and also how we can melt them down and break them down or just go around them sometimes or how they sometimes seem like after you like have a breakdown and have a huge cry that um, that's what was needed to release some barrier in yourself that you maybe never even saw before. So we're working very intimately in our hearts and minds here. It's labor and it's, doesn't it feel real? It feels real when we're doing it. I mean, that's what happens. We invoke all these presences and relationships and start to shift our inner world around. And as we've been designated now, um, this geological age is the Anthropocene, meaning that human beings are determining the natural environment. We're the only species that breeds indiscriminately anymore. We're the only wild animals left. The other ones are all existing on our tolerance or with our support pretty much, you know? And the way our mind works is really determining the ecosphere. We're all interconnected and the greed and the anger and the ugliness in us, we can see it written in our world right now. And there's so many of us that we can each start to feel insignificant, but that is kind of an error since when we talk about the boundless states, I said this earlier, like it's the small moments also, like the smile that you offer to someone that changes their day that also becomes sort of a ripple effect. The unkindness in our mind is writ large because too many people are participating. So it's really for us radically to opt out. And this is what we're doing here. So some of the obstacles to mudita practice, I'll just go through them a little bit. Um, the sense of envy or unworthiness we've talked a little bit about. The way that sometimes if we see the good fortune that someone else has, we say, well, it's not for me, and that shadow falls. Um, 
like I have a hard time reading very successful books because I'm a writer. I feel like I don't want to like give them my money. They're already so successful and I have to get over that. It's, that, it's bad. I don't think it's good karma for me either. Um, so I do, but I see it a lot of the time. I think it's a, I don't know if it's an artist's uh, disease in particular, but I certainly see that in myself. Or I told one of the groups the other day, I was in California with a friend and we were swimming in the ocean and um, it was really fun and exhilarating. We went two days in a row and the first day I caught this great wave and I body surfed in and it was a really long ride and it was fantastic and everything and I got out and I was like, yeah, you know, and then, then she didn't get any wave and I didn't feel that bad because she wasn't very far behind me. But then the next day she got the wave and I didn't and I was like, oh, kind of like that and I was like wow look the tables are turned I wasn't compassionate the day before and today I have this like little click in my mind that was like not me it didn't happen for me fortunately we were teaching a retreat together and my mind saw that little moment and it didn't act out for very long like it didn't leave as deep of an imprint as it might have like I remembered the whole sequence and I saw the mind doing its little like nasty thing and with awareness, there's a kind of cushioning so that it doesn't kind of get imprinted or embedded in the same way. I quickly remembered how much fun it had been to swim together and how happy I was that anyone should be able to have a wave that's fun. So this idea that we're separate from the happiness of others is kind of a horrible calcification that we carry. And I invite us to sort of chip away at it a little bit and look for happy moments. And when someone else is happy, let yourself share it. You're not taking anything away from them, you know, when someone's smiling or when you see a baby or when someone rejoices in getting a partner in their life. Um, It's a beautiful thing to be able to celebrate with each other. It may be that we're not directly able to celebrate if say like we have been really yearning to be with someone and someone else like gets together and starts having a great relationship. Sometimes our yearnings are so profound, like supposing you're one of those people who really, really wants to be enlightened and you start suspecting that somebody else is enlightened and you're not. (laughs) It doesn't necessarily inspire you to imitate. It inspires you to crawl into a hole, I can tell you myself. Like... (laughs) So what do we do at those times? Like, we remember the instructions that it's really about being where we are, each one of us, and to learn to find a home in the ground that we're on and to love ourself and to love our life. And if there are big issues in our life that seem to continue to cause us misery, is there something we can do about it inwardly or outwardly, or is there not? Are there cases, like in the case of becoming enlightened, like, some of the other people we suspect. Is there something that we could do to try to help create those conditions for ourselves? Or what? Can we talk to our heart and mind sincerely about rejoicing in ourself, about the value of our own virtue and our desire for happiness, and to find the happiness, at least some of it, where we already are? Not berating our heart for shutting down but sometimes asking if we're willing to put down some of the burden of fear and widen that circle of happiness that's around us. The Buddha said, um, I have love for the footless. For the bipeds, too, I have love. I have love for those with four feet, and for the many-footed, I have love. Now imagine who the many-footed might be, or the footless in India, the poisonous animals. It doesn't mean going and giving your arm to a cobra, but it means actually appreciating kind of beyond where we thought we might be able to, taking the bounds off of our heart. So that's an invitation. And practically, as we are beginning to open our practice to larger groups of beings, um, one of my own practices is to pretend that my I have x-ray vision and I can see the goodness in people's heart area like it's like a little secret glasses that I (laughs) play with the idea of Um, it just instigates a type of recognition and appreciation 
Another thing that can be done, this is something that Yoshin did at a time when she had chronic fatigue and couldn't enjoy very much. She was a person who taught here for some time and then is now teaching in another tradition. But she said when she was sick, she took one moment per day or one thing to rejoice in or let her heart open to, like... Should it be that her partner would carry her to the ocean and let her be in the water a little bit, she would practice opening her heart to those feelings at that moment or to the food that she could eat or to the light that came in the window just as a way of balancing her mind at a time when it could have tended to become quite distressed. So please seek out the joy points uh, for yourself that are personal to you and um, be willing to share with others your joys and be willing to share the joy of others this very short and beautiful life that we have here this very short and beautiful time that we have here together I'll close with this quote from the young new Karmapa the 17th Karmapa who says when you rejoice in the virtue of someone else you will have more virtue yourself and when you rejoice in your own virtue then it becomes immeasurable. I guess that's how it becomes immeasurable. When you don't overlook it anymore, it sort of somehow gets doubled or squared or whatever it is, this thing that awareness does for us. You know what? I forgot to read the whole cynical part. I don't know why I did that, but if you need to hear it, I can do it tomorrow. I think I've talked it long enough for now. It's just that cynicism is a, it's a, a protection and it's needing to know that something's real, you know? But the feeling that we're being objective when we're being grumpy is an illusion also, you know? So maybe I have one good quote about that just because I don't want to make anyone nauseous with all this joy. You know? <laughs> huh, maybe I didn't even print it out. I guess it's just that, to say that we don't want to forget that there's also suffering and we also want to, you know, find the proof of the pudding or something. I think the part of us that feels cynical is a little bit trying to know that something is genuine. So between the understanding of what's wrong and the understanding of what could be right, we need to kind of negotiate our path there. So thank you for your listening and... We'll sit for just a minute together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.